This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Temporal arteritis, also known as giant cell arteritis, is a vasculitis involving medium-sized vessels, and it typically occurs in those over the age of 50. If diagnosed and treated early, there's an excellent likelihood of recovery. However, temporal arteritis often mimics other health problems, and this commonly results in a delay in the diagnosis. If untreated, serious complications can occur, including permanent blindness or a stroke. Today's topic is temporal arteritis, and our guest is Dr. Andy Abril, Chair of the Division of Rheumatology at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Andy, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So in addition to age, what are other risk factors for developing temporal arteritis? Temporal arteritis is a condition that happens more frequently, actually a lot more frequently in patients of Caucasian extraction, especially Northern European extraction. So it is less common, even though I have to emphasize that it happens and we see it in other ethnic groups as well. But the majority of patients are Caucasian. It's one of the reasons why it, this is more prevalent in the Northern part of Europe and the United States because Northern European extraction is a risk factor as well. So how does it typically present? When should we suspect it when a patient comes into our office with early symptoms of temporal arteritis? The classic presentation is usually person in their 70s. The uh, medium age of beginning of temporal arteritis is around 73 to 74 years of age, even though, as you mentioned, it could be seen in anybody after the age of 50. So uh, somebody in their late 60s, early 70s that presents with headaches, usually temporal headaches, relatively new onset is a headache that stays usually throughout the day. Patients may have also what we call scalp tenderness. So they start noticing tenderness when they comb their hair, for instance. Some patients develop jaw claudication, which is pain in the jaw with chewing, which is an ischemic type of uh, symptom that happens because of decreased blood flow to those muscles. And patients may present with visual changes. And this is exactly what we don't want to see. Uh, they may have amaurosis fugax. They could have complete loss or partial loss of vision. Sometimes it's segmental. Sometimes patients start noticing episodes of double vision. So when that happens, that tells us we need to be very aggressive with the treatment. Mm -hmm. That is the, the cranial presentation, which is the most common. However, patients may also present with extracranial vessel involvement. And those are patients that usually have symptoms of arm or leg claudication because of narrowing of the blood vessels that are branches of the aorta, like the axillary, brachial uh, arteries. Sometimes it involves the lower extremities and patients may have also lower extremity claudication. And we may see the patient in the office and they may lack a radial pulse, for instance, or a pulse in the lower extremity. Patients that develop temporal arteritis frequently have general symptoms of malaise, fatigue, weakness, sometimes fever, sometimes weight loss because of systemic inflammatory component of these diseases. There are other symptoms that are more rare, like pain over the carotid arteries. And the other devastating presentation in these patients may be cerebrovascular episodes or strokes. So that's another potential catastrophic presentation that fortunately is not that common. So this is a condition that does tend to involve medium-sized arteries, but 
not necessarily just localized to the scalp, to the uh, temporal areas, right? Exactly. It could involve large vessels as well. It could cause aortitis in the thoracic aorta or abdominal aorta. So, and those are difficult to diagnose because they may not have any symptoms of claudication or cranial symptoms, just maybe general symptoms and elevated inflammatory markers. In fact, when you have extracranial manifestations, it usually takes a lot longer to diagnose these patients. So yeah, they may present with other symptoms besides the classic temporal headaches, jocularication, scalp tenderness, visual changes. How does this differ from Takeyusu's arteritis? They are very similar in the sense that both conditions may affect large vessels and medium-sized vessels. Takeyasu's is a disease of younger people. So usually patients, Takayasu, are patients that are younger than 40 years of age. And the most common age of presentation is actually in the 20s or 30s. Takayasu has been known as pulseless disease because it could have similar symptoms when it involves the peripheral arteries, such as, you know, lack of pulses and claudication. Takayasu does not seem to affect the temporal arteries. So it's very uncommon for tachyasis to present with temporal arteritis symptoms, even though the other large vessel, medium-sized vessel symptoms may be very similar. Patients with tachyasis may also have strokes. They may also have renal artery stenosis because of the vasculitis. They may even have coronary involvement. But the main differentiation is the age of the patients. If you have somebody with claudication at age 20 or 30, it's tachyasis. If you have the same presentation as somebody that's 70, it's probably Jansa arteritis, and uh, even the biopsies could be very similar when tissue could be obtained. So there is some overlap, but two distinctive health conditions. Yes. Well, I've probably had a dozen or so cases of temporal arteritis over my career, and it's really hard to discuss temporal arteritis without talking about polymyalgia rheumatica, since uh, those two kind of go together. Tell us a little bit about polymyalgia rheumatica. Polymyalgia rheumatica is a condition that the main problem is an inflammatory arthritis or periarthritis. It involves the proximal areas more commonly, so shoulders, neck, hips, buttocks, low back. So it's a proximal inflammatory process. Patients typically have a lot of morning stiffness for more than an hour, elevated inflammatory markers, and it tends to get better as the day goes by and is quickly responsive to prednisone. Some of the similarities include that it happens in the same age group as giant cell arteritis. So it's usually in the um, population over the age of 50. And again, just as GCA, the uh, average onset age is, is the early 70s. It is frequently associated with giant cell arteritis. Any idea what percent of patients with temporal arteritis have a coexisting polymyalgia? Yeah, so they've done this, this study, look at population studies, a couple of those in Olmsted County in Minnesota. About 40 to 50% of patients with Janssen arteritis have polymyalgia rheumatica symptoms. So it's very common to see that. And it, and it often actually helps to diagnose Janssen arteritis. If you have polymyalgia rheumatica and somebody's not responding well, or has excessively elevated inflammatory markers, we have to suspect Janssen arteritis. And if you look at the polymyalgia rheumatica population, so basically the percent just with polymyalgia rheumatica, about 10 to 20% of those patients may have underlying Janssen arteritis as well. And this is clinically because they've done postmortem studies and we believe that that number is higher. Patients may have more asymptomatic or like localized to a large vessel, Janssen arteritis presenting with palmyalgia rheumatica, but that may be difficult to detect. But the bottom line is that, yes, we do see a lot of GCA in patients with PMR as well. Okay. 
let's talk a little bit about the uh, diagnosis of temporal arteritis. What's needed? What do we see on lab tests or what do we need to confirm a diagnosis of temporal arteritis other than the history? This is a condition that unfortunately does not have any, any serological markers. These patients typically have elevated inflammatory markers. Both erythrocementation rate and the C-reactive protein can be elevated and usually the higher numbers. So it's not just my elevations, but usually they're, they're quite elevated. Sometimes both. In fact, even though, again, they are not specific for Janus arteritis, the likelihood of Janus arteritis if both the sedimentation rate and C-reactive protein are low is less than 4%. The gold standard way to diagnose Janus arteritis, especially cranial involvement, is the temporal artery biopsy, which is something that is an outpatient procedure. In certain places, especially in Europe, and it's picking up a little bit here in the United States, ultrasound of the temporal arteries could also help uh, detect temporal arteritis. You can see something called a halo sign, which is edema around the vessel that is quite typical of Janus arteritis. A caveat there is that you can do a biopsy after you start steroids. However, once you start steroids, the ultrasound changes within a couple of days go away. So ultrasound when somebody's been on steroids, even for a couple of days, may not be as accurate. Mm -hmm. The uh, other diagnostic dilemma is an extracranial disease, because in those cases, the only way to diagnose that is with imaging. And you can do that with either a CT angiogram, which is what we use the most. You can also see changes with an MR angiogram. And you may even see typical changes of aortitis on PET scanning, either just a regular PET or PET CT. Of course, PET is more costly and, and not typically covered by insurance. So the imaging uh, studies that we do more frequently are CT angiograms and MR angiograms. So you can see the aortitis, you can see the tapered narrowing of the medium-sized vessels. And those findings, of course, because of the, those vessels are so important, you cannot biopsy those, of course. It seems like as I look back or think back to the patients I've had with temporal arteritis, they all had, except one patient, a uh, sedimentation rate of over 100. It was definitely high. The one I did have that was not elevated was a patient with classic symptoms, but her sedimentation rate was quite low. And that's very unusual, I understand. And uh, that created some difficulty in getting her uh, a diagnosis. Yes, we see that from time to time. Fortunately, it's not common, but it happens. One thing that we have to keep in mind is, and I'm sure you and other practitioners may have seen this in the practice, some of us have set rates of one or less than one every time you check them. But what happens if somebody that has a baseline of one suddenly has a set rate of 15? So the set rate of 15 would still be normal if you look at the, the normal range, but that would be 10 to 15 times higher for that patient. So that's how sometimes we have to, if we know the previous values, uh, we, it may be, we may be able to tell if this set rate is, is very high for that particular person or not. So, I mean, these are little caveats that you have to look at as well when you have somebody with a kind of clinical GCA, but the inflammatory markers are not that high. Yeah. Then we have to look at previous values and see where the patient stands. So the typical diagnosis usually established with a temporal artery biopsy and Let's say we have a patient with a unilateral headache. I assume that they start with the biopsy of that side of the head. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. The most recent guidelines recommend to do a unilateral biopsy initially. So, and then of course we go with the area that's symptomatic. And then depending on the, on the medical center where you are, you know, we know that at Mayo, if that temporal artery biopsy is negative, 
you can do like a quick check there with pathology when the patient's still on the table, and then you can do a contralateral biopsy. So bilateral biopsy could be done, and it increases the yield for about 10%. So sometimes it's, it's helpful to do bilateral, but the new guidelines recommend unilateral first, usually mm -hmm. the symptomatic side. But I think the key point of what you said was if a patient has symptoms and the unilateral biopsy is negative, don't stop there. Biopsy the other side to make sure you're not missing it. Yes. If you still feel that this is the most likely diagnosis and it's negative, you can proceed with the second. Sometimes you can just tell the surgeon just do one. And a lot of centers do that. At Mayo, we, we typically try to do bilateral if we can. Okay. So once a uh, diagnosis is suspected or confirmed, how do temporalitis patients get treated? For many years, the only treatment that we had was uh, corticosteroids or glucocorticoids. And more specifically, prednisone is the one that we use the most, but you can use methylprednisolone as well. And uh, usually at higher dosages, we have to start at higher dosages mainly because we want to avoid at all costs visual loss, because in many of these patients, the, the vision does not return. Once you lose vision, even if you start treatment, you may not recover the vision. You may, you're maybe just protecting the other eye, for instance. So we have to start with high dosages, often milligram per kilogram or similar dosages. And of course, in the general population, especially in the elderly population, the side effects of high dose of steroids were very high. So through the years, we've been trying to look for steroid sparing agents. At one point, we used methotrexate, which is still used. However, methotrexate has not shown very dramatic benefit. Some studies have shown that it decreases the dosages of steroids in some studies to, to some extent, but we have never seen any dramatic benefit from methotrexate. But recently, the biologic tocilizumab, which is an interleukin-6 monoclonal antibody inhibitor, showed a significant benefit for patients with giant cell arteritis. There's this study called GIACTA, which showed that patients were able to taper down the steroids significantly compared to placebo. So now with the new guidelines, what we do is we start glucocorticoids and at the same time or soon thereafter, we start tocilizumab because then that decreases the chance of the patient being exposed to high dosages of steroids for a long period of time. So let's say you have a patient that you highly suspect has temporal arteritis. It's a Friday afternoon and you're not able to arrange a biopsy until early next week. Do you wait for the biopsy or do you start treatment with the steroid? That's an excellent question. Actually, we start treatment right away. We don't delay. Again, the reason is to, to prevent visual loss. And there has been a couple of studies. The, the, the landmark study was done actually by a former mayor rheumatology fellow called Antonio Achkar, who did this uh, study on biopsies and showed that even after two weeks of corticosteroids, the biopsies are still positive. So steroids do not render the biopsy negative at least at two weeks and even longer. So if you have somebody that, you know, they can do the biopsy in one, two, or three weeks, that's acceptable. We try to do it before two weeks if possible, but I, you, you don't delay the treatment. Okay. And obviously the most important thing you're trying to prevent is vision loss. So if a patient gets started on a steroid, will that prevent vision loss? Yes, and it's, it's highly effective preventing visual loss. We've looked at numbers showing that once you have been on the initial treatment with high-dose corticosteroids for two weeks, the incidence of visual loss goes down to less than 1%. So it is highly protective of visual loss. And once you start corticosteroids, 
even later on, it happens, but it's very uncommon for you to have visual loss as you're tapering the steroids. Because of those numbers, we, we definitely start treatment right away. And from the patients I recall, they can be on steroids for a, a quite a long time. And it can be very difficult to get them off steroids. And sometimes even cutting back by one milligram a day seems to make a difference in terms of recurrent symptoms. That's correct. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there is a high percentage of patients with uh, genital rise that have persistent symptoms and they are recurrent. So the majority of patients, however, with genital rise tend to go in remission within the first three years. So a good 70%, but there's about 30% of patients that have persistent disease and a difficult to taper the steroids. That has changed a bit with tocilizumab because now we've been able to go down on steroids gradually. Now the question is how long to keep tocilizumab on board. That's still, we don't know. I mean, there's no studies telling us that. We typically keep that medication going for a year or two and then try to space it out and see how patients do. So how long does a typical patient end up on some type of treatment for this? Probably two to three years. And as I said, there's a percent of patients that need it longer, but on average, I would say two to three years. Some patients may need it even for less than that. There are some patients that after a year, you're able to be very low doses of steroids or even stop it. But that is less than half of the patients, but I would say two to three years. Okay. So Andy, can you give us maybe two or three key points that uh, summarize our discussion about temporal arteritis? Absolutely. So number one, once you're suspicious of temporal arteritis clinically, start the steroids right away. Don't delay. Don't wait for the biopsy. You have somebody with headaches, drug glycation, elevated inflammatory markers, get the steroids on board and try to get the biopsy within the, the following few days. That, that would be the first point. The second point is remember that Janssen arteritis is not just temporal arteritis. You can have extracranial disease and it's a challenge to diagnose these patients. The diagnosis takes a lot longer than with cranial symptoms. You have to have a, an index of suspicion. You know, if you have somebody with polymyalgia rheumatica that is not responding to lower doses of prednisone and require higher dosages, or as you mentioned before, set rates in the hundreds or higher, please uh, keep in mind that these patients may have vascular disease. We do a CT angiogram, the chest and abdomen, and that usually gives us the information that we need, or an MRNGO. That will be another point that will be important. So again, genital arteritis is not just cranial arteritis. The third point is, please remember that once you start somebody on steroids, steroids control the symptoms very well in most patients, but then we start dealing with steroid side effects. And that is a very important point. So make sure that patients are on pneumocystis prophylaxis. Make sure that patients, especially female patients, are uh, treated for osteoporosis. Sometimes, you know, GI protection with the PPI are important too. So keep that in mind and keep in mind that now we have other tools. Right now it's tocilizumab, but there are other biologics that are being studied that uh, may be coming up as alternatives within the next uh, couple of years. Uh, so those would be the three points that I would probably emphasize. Great. Thank you. Well, we've been discussing temporal arteritis with Dr. Andy Avril, a rheumatologist at the Mayo Clinic. Andy, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. You're very welcome. My pleasure. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. Mm -hmm.